Welcome, welcome, friends. Today is May 30th. We are at Plato's Pot. This is a live discussion being recorded. We meet through Toronto Philosophy Meetup, Calgary Philosophy Meetup, and Online Rebels. We will be being part of a live discussion run by James Myers. Good morning, James, from this beautiful Toronto Sunday. Good morning, Eva. It is indeed a beautiful sunny day today and uh, very excited to uh, talk about today's dialogue. It's a, a dialogue that I've read now, I think, three times. And every time I pick it up, including about two hours ago this morning, I discover new things in it. And so it's uh, uh, very excited to talk about this because this dialogue is about knowledge. It's about wisdom. And the part that we're covering today, which is about the first 24 pages or so, actually ends up at the subject of memory. And so the question is, uh, how do we remember the knowledge that we take in from time to time? And I, I found that was a really interesting connection this morning that I hadn't thought about before. So very interesting in probing this idea of memory today and, and how that fits in with our knowledge. So when you see something, or you hear something or taste or smell something or touch something that forms maybe part of our knowledge, but memory, I think is what uh, also forms part of the knowledge. And that's the conclusion that I think we're ending up with today uh, in the uh, section at 163E to 164B. So we'll end with that. And I picked uh, three different themes that we could explore, that being one of them, but we can go anywhere we want in this discussion today. Uh, it really is up to those joining us. And so I just wanted to uh, extend a very warm welcome to those who are new joining the group. Welcome, and please do feel free to add your voice to the discussion at any point that you want. We will proceed as, as we have before. We'll we use the raise hands feature in Zoom if you'd like to speak. And I'll, I'll take the speakers in order. I'll give preference to those who haven't spoken before. And so please feel free to, uh, to add your voice to that. And then after the recording has ended today, after uh, around two hours, we'll end the recording. Those who wish are welcome to stay uh, with us. And we'll just have a very informal discussion in Plato's Cafe, which is, is what we call our informal discussion after the uh, the recorded meetup ends. And we'll do that for about a half an hour and just, you know, share ideas on either this dialogue or any of Plato's dialogues, or even just philosophy in general. So we had an interesting discussion two weeks ago in Plato's Cafe and interested in, in seeing where it goes today. So again, a warm welcome to everybody. I just wanted to start with a video that I encountered a few days ago. It's an interview of the famous giant physicist, Richard Feynman. Richard Feynman died in, I think it was 1988, but he was uh, and is still held to be one of the giants of physics uh, of all time. And I think it's partially for his clarity of explanation. The so-called Feynman lectures, which he gave to, to students, uh, have been written, some of them have been recorded. And I think that that's maybe the mark of a good scientist is somebody who can explain the knowledge that they have in a way that really connects with people. And so I found this, this video of Richard Feynman um, talking to a, I think it's a BBC reporter, very interesting because he actually talks about memory. So this, this video is shot in, uh, I think it's in Yorkshire somewhere in England. And I think as the interviewer explains before the part of the clip that we'll show, it's at the home of his wife's family, I think. And so the this is recorded in the 1970s. The sound is a little bit scratchy, and it's uh, the interview is filmed with a small waterfall in the background. So it kind of muffles the sound a little bit. But I think the the idea is very clear that he's expressing what I really 
what really struck me was the look of almost joy on his face as he's talking about knowledge. So he really touches on a number of things that we'll talk about, or we could talk about in today's discussion on the Theotetus. But he also touches on uh, some topics uh, that we touched on in our discussion on Phaedrus. And so I thought it was a really interesting way to bring some of the ideas together as we head to, to wind up season one of Plato's Pod. So we'll, uh, we'll discuss the first part of Theotetus today, and then the second part we'll cover in two weeks. I don't think we'll make it through the entire dialogue. Hopefully we'll get up to the point where the dialogue starts to take on the idea of, of motion. So we'll, we'll deal with the, the themes of knowledge and memory in Theotetus before uh, motion is brought into the picture. So without further ado, I just have if you could start the, the video. This is sort of starting in the middle of the interview. And we'll just watch for, it's a little bit less than four minutes, I think, and uh, maybe pick up on some of the themes that Richard Feynman is talking about here. Conventional wisdom. One Sunday, all the kids were all walking in little parties with their fathers in the woods. Then the next Monday, we were playing in a field. And the kid said to me, say, what's that bird? What's the name of it? Do you know the name of that bird? I says, I'm the slightest idea. He said, well, it's a brown-throated thrush. He says, your father doesn't teach you anything. But my father had already taught me about the names of birds. He Once we walked in, he says, that's a brown-throated thrush. He says, know what the name of that bird is? A brown-throated thrush. In German, it's called a Fliegenflegel. In Chinese, it's called a Qinglong Tong. In Japanese, a Tohara and so on. And it, when you know all the names in every language of that bird, you know nothing, but absolutely nothing about the bird. And then we would go on and talk about the pecking and the feathers. So I had learned already that names don't constitute knowledge, the knowing the name of something. That's caused me a certain trouble since, because I refuse to learn the name of anything. So when someone comes in and says, uh, you got any explanation for the Fitzcronin experiment? I says, what, what, what's that? He says, you know, that the long-lived K-meson disintegrates into two pies. Oh, oh, yes, now I know. But I never know the names of things. What he forgot to tell me was that the knowing the names of things is useful if you want to talk to somebody else. <laughs> so you tell him what you're talking about. But the basic principle of knowing about something rather than just knowing its name is something that you stuck to, isn't it? Yes, of course. It's, well, you have to learn. These are kind of disciplines in the field of science that you have to learn. That to know when you know and when you don't know and what it is you know and what it is you don't know. And it's, uh, you've got to be very careful not to confuse yourself. How else did he try and progress. mold your methods of thinking, the way you looked at the world? Well, we had a lot of uh, little games, like he would say at the dinner table. He'd think of some little problem. And he'd say, suppose we were, you were a Martian, we were Martians, and we came down to this earth, that, and we'd look at it from the outside. And that, I can't explain exactly what he meant, but there's a way of looking something anew as if you never saw it before, for the first time, and asking questions about it as if you were different. For instance, uh, if you were to ask, later I did some little amusing research for a paper in college on sleep, but it started with a question of his kind. Suppose you were a Martian who never slept, they didn't have sleep, you didn't have to sleep, and you came down to this earth and you saw these people had this funny property that every day for a certain amount of time had to lie down and become unconscious. And then the natural question would be, how does it feel to get unconscious? Uh, what happens to you? Ideas run along and 
suddenly they stop or do they just run more and more slowly but what happens to your ideas how does it feel to become unconscious so i tried to answer the question what happens when you become unconscious but you find that these days you still when you're faced with a particularly difficult problem when you're absolutely stuck you tend to say let's look at it like a martian would look at it and sometimes stand there are lots of things that people did for example uh, Maxwell put the equations together, uh, Faraday, he formulated the equations mathematically with some model in his head. And then Dirac uh, got his answer by just writing and guessing an equation. And uh, other people got uh, their answer, like in relativity, got the idea by looking at principles of symmetry. Now all these methods, uh, Heisenberg got his quantum mechanics by thinking only talk about the things that you can measure. Now, all of these ideas, we should only talk about things that we can measure. Try to define things in terms of only things you measure. Or let's formulate the equation mathematically. Or let's guess the equation. Or all these things are tried all the time. Look for symmetries. All that stuff is tried. All that stuff, when we're going against the problem, we do all that. That's very useful. But we all know that. That's what we learn in the physics classes, how to do that. But the new problem where we're stuck we're stuck because all those methods don't work if any of those methods would have worked we would have gone through there so when we get stuck in a certain place it's a place where history will not repeat herself and that's more makes it even more exciting because whatever we're going to look at at the other the method and the trick and the way it's going to look is going to be very different than anything that we've seen before because we've used all the methods from before so uh therefore a thing like the history of the idea is an accident of how things actually happen. And if I want to turn the history around to try to get a, a new way of looking at it, it doesn't make any difference. It, I, I don't care. The only thing that the real test in physics is experiment, and history is fundamentally irrelevant. The most enduring legacy from his father was not just learning to question the physical world, but an enthusiasm for the inquiry, which at 54, Feynman still shares today. It has to do with curiosity. It has to do with people wondering what makes something do something. Thank you for sharing that. Eva. I just, um, so that was, for those who were, uh, who joined uh, partway through that, um, that was the great physicist Richard Feynman being interviewed in the 1970s, I think it was, uh, in the UK when where he was visiting. And um, he really, I think, just touched on so many of the ideas that uh, Plato is covering here in Theotetus, the, the first part that we're talking about today. And, and, you know, he actually starts with a memory of what he learned from his father. So his father was, I think, a tailor in New York City. Um, and he learned certain things from his father. His father wasn't a physicist, but what he learned from his father kind of enabled him to proceed in physics and, and to, to be curious. And uh, I, I really like that uh, recollection of his uh, sitting around the dinner table and pretending that they're all Martians coming down to Earth and looking at, looking at the people on Earth and wondering you know, what it is to sleep, you know, to have knowledge of what it is like to sleep and to, to be unconscious. I mean, it's a very interesting question. And so he says he wrote a, a paper about that for, uh, for university. So he touched upon a number of things, including the idea of defining what a bird is, uh, you know, the brown-throated thrush, and he gave the, the name in three different languages. And that really kind of reminded me uh, of uh, Phaedrus um, at around 277 C, where Socrates says, 
Uh, first, you must know the truth concerning everything you are speaking or writing about. You must learn how to define each thing in itself. And having defined it, you must know how, how to divide it into kinds until you reach something indivisible. And, you know, here, here Richard Feynman is talking about, well, you might know the name of the bird, but until you, until you define what the actual bird is, um, you don't really have knowledge of the bird. Um, so that really struck me as a very powerful video. And so I'm, I'm hoping that maybe we can kind of, as we discussed today, we can kind of pick up on some of the themes that Feynman uh, brought to us in that, uh, in that recording. Um, you know, the idea of, of looking at something in new is something that he talked about in that recording as well. And, uh, you know, again, that was kind of the, the Martian analogy. If you were a Martian, how would you look at, at things? I was listening to a podcast yesterday uh, it's the Joy of X podcast by mathematician Steve Strogatz, and it's uh, sponsored by Quantum Magazine, which is a brilliant magazine. Uh, explains some very difficult concepts uh, in mathematics and physics, uh, I think in a way that's very relatable. And Strogatz was interviewing uh, physicist Robert Digraph. Um, and Robert Digraph's path to physics was fascinating to listen to because um, he started in physics and it, it didn't, didn't quite click with him. And then he, he tells Strogatz in this interview that he went to art school for two years. So he stopped doing physics and he went to art school. And then he says that, uh, you know, that, that, that understanding of the, of the meaning of art and the process of doing art rekindled in him a passion for physics. And that has actually some relation to what Feynman said in this uh, in this, you know, recording, uh, in this interview, you know, knowledge in us is triggered in different ways. And in Digraph's uh, case, in that podcast that I was listening to, uh, it was triggered by art. Um, you know, but, but Feynman talked about how, you know, Heisenberg uh, liked the idea of, you know, only talking about things that you can measure. Um, other people, he said, um, you know, hit upon knowledge just, you know, by a random process. Uh, so each of us has a different approach to knowledge. And I thought that that was kind of a powerful thing that, uh, that Feynman said. Uh, but the interesting thing is that that whole interview of Feynman was brought about by a memory, a memory of his father. And so the Theotetus starts with a memory. And the, the section that we'll end with reading today is all about memory. So the Theotetus the, the theater starts with two characters who are not then part of the subsequent dialogue, and they're recalling um, what, what uh, Socrates uh, told, um, and they're putting it not just in the context of the exact replay of the words that Socrates said, but they're actually doing a reconstruction of the scene that, that Socrates relates this whole discussion that he had with Theodorus the geometer, and Theotetus, the mathematician. So it's a, it's a dramatic reconstruction of something that, uh, that Socrates had related. Um, and so it, that's another interesting connection, I think, to Phaedrus, this whole idea of, of memory in that, that, uh, that famous uh, sequence in Phaedrus that we covered between Thamus and Thuth, uh, Thamus, the uh, Egyptian king, and Thuth, the, the god of writing, and the idea of how one recalls knowledge. Um, and if one recalls it just in writing, the, the point that they were making in Phaedrus is that we can kind of forget the source of the knowledge and we can rely on the, 
on the written word too much without really going back to the source, which in Phaedrus says the, the source is actually inside the soul. So that's by way of introduction. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, just as we kind of maybe talk about the idea of memory today, um, you know, what is it about memory that, that, that kind of ties knowledge together? And I'm just wondering, you know, maybe from individual experience, um, and what we've read in the first part of, of Theotetus that we'll discuss today, is there any particular things about memory that you think are important, um, uh, you know, you know, to keep in mind and, and, you know, what, what are the key elements of, of memory? Um, and, and how does memory go wrong sometime? And, and is memory different for each of us? Uh, these are themes that, that I'm thinking that maybe we can build on today in our discussion. So we, um, I think one of the things, uh, you know, about memory is, is that it is different for each of us. And I'm just wondering, um, we'll take Moshe and then JK, and maybe just if you can, maybe if there's any personal kind of perspective on memory that you can offer, that would be great, or just anything in general. Um, Moshe, your thoughts. Well, I was wondering where, how you're, I was wondering why you're introducing this through memory, because this dialogue is a dialogue that was written down by Euclid. And he says that um, um, uh, these, um, he, had heard the, he had heard the dialogue. And as soon as he got home, uh, I filled up from memory, writing them down at leisure. Whenever I went to Athens, I asked Socrates about the point that I had forgotten or may return and made, and then I returned and made uh, corrections. So this isn't purely from memory. He's writing down, these are our contemporaneous notes that he's correcting with the author himself. So I'm wondering what your tie-in is here to memory, because when the, the servant starts to read what the dialogue was, it immediately starts to talk about um, uh, knowledge and Theotetus' uh, idea at first that it's perception. Thank you for the question. The um, there's a passage at right near the beginning at one forty three C, and so this is where Euclides is uh, relating the story to Terpsion, and Euclides says, "I wanted in the written version." to avoid the bother of having the bits of narrative in between the speeches. I mean, when Socrates, whenever he mentions his own part in the discussion, says, and I maintained, or I said, or of the person answering, he agreed, or he would not admit this. That is why I made him talk directly to them, and I have left out these formulae. So it's kind of not a direct transcript of the... Uh, of what Socrates told him, it's a it's a reconstruction, uh, and that's why I thought that was that was kind of interesting. It's not a direct transcript, um, and even when you make a direct transcript, you can't get the, the the inflections of the speaker. Do you get the meaning of the speaker in a direct transcript? Um, do you get the context of it in a direct tra transcript? So. I mean, I, I think, you know, and certainly when we end up today at 163, 164, uh, it touches directly on memory. So thank you for the question. And, and that's why I, I thought that this was, this was a kind of interesting introduction to tie the, the themes together, uh, starting with 
you know, man is the measure of all things, which we'll, we'll discuss, I think, shortly, and then ending it with the idea of memory. Um, JK, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I was thinking about uh, memory always involves uh, a certain, uh, you know, uh, involves certain um, interpretations based on one's um, one's emotional or, uh, you know, um, intellectual, uh, you know, um, tendency or bias, you know, so it's, it's always selective memory. You never get what exactly what happened. It's just like uh, when uh, Feynman was talking about the names of birds, you know, you know, once you give the names, uh, you, you understand, you know what the names are, but it's already by giving, by understanding or focusing on the name, you're, you're kind of ignoring what the real bird really is, you know, kind of narrowing it down to, to what is uh, the meaning of what you, uh, you know, uh, take to be the meaning of the name. And you're ignoring the actual bird itself. So, like, so, like in memory, you're you're always uh, using, you know, uh, language and and concepts that um, that are already, you know, divorced or, you know, um, alien from the uh, actual thing itself. So it's always selective memory. As I was thinking about that. Yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, none of us has a perfect memory. Um, and, you know, does does our recounting or does our account of things, when we when we render an account of our memory, do we render a full account? Do we, do we render an account of what particularly struck us in the meaning of something? Um, do we render an account of how we actually derive that knowledge? So if I tell you I know uh, that a certain thing is or is not, Am I also necessarily telling you how I came to that knowledge? Maybe or maybe not. Maybe sometimes I would, maybe sometimes I wouldn't. But, you know, do you act on my memory? Does my memory, does my relating my memory change you? Um, and, you know, if I'm relating a specific memory, how do I then get back to the general form that underlied that memory? You know, to, to bring up that, that idea of Phaedrus, of this, this idea of the general form, you know, the, the, the basis of the memory. So thank you. Uh, Donald, welcome. What are your thoughts? Well, I, th I think memory here goes a bit deeper in that we are talking about, in the dialogue, is taking up Heraclitus's kind of doctrine of flux. And if we are constantly becoming something other than what we are, what what keeps all those others together as something continuous through time? And I, I think it is memory. Uh, so, so memory in that sense is at the heart of the dialogue. It is also, I think, true generally in Plato that it is not the particular verbal formulation that just remembering them. In fact, there are, I, I've lost all my examples, but there are cases in the dialogue where in different dialogues, characters will repeat the exact words that Socrates 
took as an answer or seemed acceptable. And they will repeat them to Socrates in some other dialogue, and then he will destroy that formulation because it's clear they do not see the underlying reality that Feynman nailed it correctly. And, I, and that's a brilliant little four minutes on, it's not, it's not the names or the words or the language that we use. It's our ability to see the reality. And that's, that, that's kind of what I, I think here. This is actually a very friendly dialogue. It's not adversarial between Theotetus and Socrates like it is in others. You know, it also, it also reminds me of my youth. I was a young mathematician, and against the advice of my professor, I decided to study philosophy, and he told me I should do math until I was 25, and then I could spend the rest of my life doing philosophy. He was right, but I'm way older than 25 now, so I can't do math or philosophy. But memory... Very, very important here. I think it's it's what provides continuity in this flux environment that that's in this dialogue. I think I think that's enough. Well, th thank you, Donald. And and uh, when you talk about flux, actually, that was the. Um, there's a part in the second reading that I excerpted here uh, in the in the notes that are posted on the shared drive, uh, and it's around 152e, I would say. Um, and there's this wonderful passage, and maybe I'll just read it here. That, uh, um, and this is the idea of of becoming, uh, the, the state of becoming. Um, it's actually on the yeah, it's it's on that page of it. It's um, yeah, it's, it's the second paragraph under Socrates here. Well, actually, the end of the first paragraph. So Socrates says, what is really true is this. The things of which we naturally say that they are, are in a process of coming to be, as the result of movement and change and blending with one another. We are wrong when we say they are, since nothing ever is, but everything is coming to be. And then he goes on to say, and as regards this point of view, let us take it as a fact that all the wise men of the past, with the exception of Parmenides, stand together. Let us take it that we find on this side Protagoras and Heraclitus and Empedocles, and also the masters of the two kinds of poetry, Epicharmus and comedy and Homer and tragedy. For when Homer talked about ocean, begetter of gods, and Tethys, their mother, he made all things the offspring of flux and motion, or don't you think he meant that? So you raised, Donald, the, the very interesting question of if we ourselves are the product of flux and motion, uh, how, do we, how do we remember? So thank you, for that, uh, thank you for that point. And I just wanted to tie it to that specific paragraph, which I think is, is uh, very key. Greg, welcome. Uh, what are your thoughts? I'm kind of in the same line as uh, Donald just said. I think uh, at, at that time, when there's very little written materials, all knowledge are stored in, in the individual in the form of a memory. So memory is indeed regarded very important and there's a God is 
or memory at the time to, to cherish it, the faculty of memory. And, uh, and that's, uh, you know, memory is all what we know. But I think uh, the dialogue seemed to get into this to, to see that, you know, memory certainly has a lot of things. Some are come from perception, some from just, uh, you know, listening to other people, some are from our reasoning and so come to understanding. All these are precipitate in, in the form of memory and later on kind of come out as knowledge if they are. So, so it, it, is, it is important, but, but I think uh, in some way that, that it's lumped together. Uh, they, you know, Socrates and this philosopher realized that that is a memory thing. Uh, you can't really call knowledge is memory, but uh, knowledge somehow is very tied into memory because until you write out, it is in your memory and how do you express it? And it's, it's, it's a constant in the flux. You know, you, you may remember something being, you think is knowledge, but as you go on, your understanding gets better. Your knowledge changes, just like uh, things changes. So this knowledge itself changes. How do we tie it down? So I think uh, they are just uh, trying to, to explore this relationship between knowledge and, and memory, perception, all that, to really to pin down what is knowledge that, that what they ask. And then make knowledge be independent in a sense, on one hand, to the perception of material, but on the other hand, to, to the memory itself. I think they want to, there's, I've sensed there's attempt to, to make knowledge really be independent of memory itself. So anyway, that's, that's my, my, my kind of uh, sense. Oh, by the way, also, I appreciate the, 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 the little video about the famine. Great. I think uh, particularly, think that the you know he um, he said that that uh, that history uh, history of idea is accidental, and this is profound. I think he he pointed out that that the known really in some way is the limit of knowing the unknown. And I'm being scientist. He's my hero, and uh, and I think I, I quote uh, one of his model motto that he, um, one of the sentences he said was, uh, has become my motto, which is that he said, the, there's expanding frontier of ignorance. I don't know where, where he said, but I, I, I find this very striking. Like there's always more unknown than known. Mm -hmm. but anyway, talking about flux. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, he, he certainly did talk about the, um, you know, knowing what you know and what you don't know. He had, I think there was three or four lines that he used in the middle of that uh, and making and understanding what you know and you don't know. And that I found that was very Socratic. You know, Socrates says, you know, that uh, the oracle at Delphi said that he was wise because he knew one thing, which is that he knew nothing. And, you know, so maybe as we think about memory, you know, is, is there a limit to memory, you know, and, and this idea that we'll explore of man being the measure of all things, is man uh, or is mankind limited uh, in its memory? Uh, do we have limits to memory or does memory, is memory unlimited? Is memory infinite? And, and do we remember things that we know and things that we don't know? Do I remember that I knew something yesterday and that I didn't know something yesterday? Um, so it's an interesting, uh, interesting idea. Moshe. Uh, okay, memory. Uh, yes, fundamental to knowledge. Uh, 
Uh, I, I want to point out that that even if we assume this to be correct, uh, Plato doesn't tell us what memory is. So I find that a little bit uh, disturbing. He simply assumes that it is. My remarks that it's fundamental to knowledge can be illustrated by uh, simply considering what it would be like to give an account of something. You know, if I want to give an account of an apple um, or a, a quantum particle, uh, if I start my sentence by saying the quantum particle is, and I've identified the subject and now I get to the predicate, if I'm at the predicate and I can't remember what the subject is, I won't even be able to complete my sentence. I, mem uh, uh, experience and knowledge becomes impossible if memory is not there because it would make it so that it would be possible for us to forget the subject of a sentence by the time we got to making the predicate of the sentence. That being said, um, uh, no one is telling us in here what memory is. So to talk about things like, does memory have limits? Um, you know, what are the limits of it? We haven't identified what it is yet. So I, I although that's a noble thing to do, it, it might be premature. Thank you. And that's a question I think that we can uh, certainly all address. Um, you know, and I, I don't claim to have um, full knowledge of it myself. I think it's uh, I think it's something that we need to all bring into the conversation and and you've raised an important point. I mean, I think the uh, you know the idea that knowledge is recollection, uh, recollection maybe being another word for memory, uh, is an idea that Plato brought quite forcefully, I think, in the Mino, which we discussed before. And again, I'll remind at the end of the Mino, uh, Socrates further defines uh, knowledge as recollection. He says, Recollection is the account of the reasons why. Um, and maybe that's part of what we could think about in the context of memory, the account of the reasons why. Um, and so I think uh, in that video, Feynman gave an interesting account of the reasons why these great scientists such as Dirac um, and, and Heisenberg, for example, arrived at their particular pieces of knowledge. So for example, Heisenberg was the one who established the uncertainty principle, the, the universal principle of uncertainty that exists in physics. The, the more you know of a particle's position, the less you know about its momentum, and the more you know about its momentum, the less you know about its position. Um, and so Heisenberg arrived at that particular understanding of knowledge, um, as Feynman said, taking an approach that you can only know what you can measure or you should only talk about what you can measure so that that's what Feynman said in that that little clip so that's the approach that Heisenberg took that led him to that particular piece of knowledge whereas you know in the podcast that I mentioned where digraph is is talking it was more art that inspired his knowledge of physics and and digraph by the way uh, is uh, currently he's he's working on string theory and the idea that below the level of space and time more fundamental to the level of space and time is actually a matrix model, uh, like a mathematical geometric matrix uh, underlying the fabric of space and time. So the matrix exists first, and then there's a fabric of space and time. So, you know, and, and he's a very well-respected and very well-spoken physicist. Um, so interesting ideas as to how we actually arrive at our knowledge and whether our knowledge is maybe triggered by some memories 
memories, again, being uh, possibly the account of the reasons why. So maybe we can, uh, maybe we can go to a reading in a, in a minute or two. Uh, and, and if I could have some volunteers, it's the, the first reading that I've posted in the shared drive at 152D to 153A, um, which we can go to in, in a minute uh, or two here. Um, but if, if we could have a volunteer, somebody to be Socrates and somebody to be Theotetus, maybe we can kind of talk about this idea of man being the measure of all things. Before I do that, though, I, I think I think I saw JK's hand up. JK, did you have a, a point you'd like to add? Yeah, I was uh, just um, going to ask uh, and maybe uh, entertain the idea that there is um, unco unconscious memory and there's conscious memory. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, Plato might have um, suggested that there is a, this kind of unconscious memory that we carry, you know, uh, we carry with us that uh, that uh, also it plays a role and that uh, of course some people have photographic memories and so forth and and they can you know remember particulars you know but uh you know um how you know whether that memory how long that lasts or you know it degrades over time because of this change in flux um i think it still operates there but um, that there is, um, that I think maybe it was, what was Plato proposing was this, um, this unconscious memory uh, that's, that is there, maybe a kind of a collective memory, a collective unconscious memory, you know, in, in these different forms, archetypes or whatever. So, you know, I think that kind of, uh, you know, plays a role there. Thank you. And yes, the, the use of the word archetypes. Um, and I think that's actually something that you mentioned in our last episode as well, that really struck me this idea of archetype, you know, we're maybe built on some form of uh, memory or some general form that then expresses itself in, in particulars, you know, again, to pick up on that idea of the general form from, from Phaedrus. Uh, and then each of us has maybe our particular way of expressing that memory but uh, i think you also mentioned the important point of of memory not just being individual but memory also being collective and so maybe each of us adds to our knowledge and to the memory of that knowledge um so um it's an important point i think that you raise and, and thank you for that um and we'll just go to to Nari. Nari, thank you and uh, welcome and what are your thoughts no, I just wanted to add a bit to what J.K. was saying about memory, uh, and, and it's just not, uh, just just a comment, really. Uh, children that are three years old that have now become adults, or maybe around that age group, they claim to have such memory and uh, almost vivid memory. I, I've heard a personal account of a friend that. Um, said things happened to her at that age and she was uh you know she was certain and she was observing a parent and kept reinforcing this idea and i was like quite taken back with with uh what was said because i i can't even remember myself at three uh, uh my memory so it's it's very interesting uh, or or 
some of us have a photographic memory at that age? Do we, are some of us more uh, aware, equipped with our memory than others? I don't know. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, I think somebody earlier on mentioned the idea of memory perhaps sometimes being selective and maybe our use of knowledge is also selective. Um, you know, maybe we select particular pieces of knowledge that we think are important and discard others that we think are not important. And so maybe each of us kind of puts our own color on knowledge. Um, so it's an interesting idea. So thank you for that. Uh, Joel, what are your thoughts? Uh, this may be a little trite or trivial in the context of this discussion, but uh, JK and Nari's comments about childhood memories and so on uh, just brought it to mind. So I was visiting uh, with a family in, of all places, New Mexico, and it was a holiday season. And the lady of the household was making sweets, fudge in particular. And I was out and I came in and I walked into the kitchen and smelled the aroma of the fudge. And I was immediately transported back to the age of three or four, where I recognized that specific smell, which I had not smelt in at least 40 years, nor thought about. Um, and bingo, I, I, I was absolutely shocked. Where did that come from my unconscious memory? I began to inquire as to what the recipe was because the only place that that smell came from for me was my grandmother who had long passed, who used to make a recipe of fudge. And as a child, I would anxiously wait for it to come out of the oven or the stove or however she made it. And I hadn't thought about it since I was perhaps four or five years old. And then here I was 50 years later, instantaneously and involuntarily transported back to that experience. So, you know, is that an unconscious memory? And it's not a memory even involving necessarily words. I could think about it in words, but it, it was a totally different sense experience. I love that uh, example, Joel, because you just, uh, case in point, you just triggered a memory in me because my... <laughs> My, my great aunt who uh, used to make fudge and she used to mail it to my brother and me. Uh, and this, this used to be the greatest treat that we would receive. And so I had forgotten about that, Joel, until you just mentioned that. Uh, so you took me on a little time travel trip, I think, with that, with that memory. So I appreciate that. Uh, wait, so we'll till, just... wait, wait till you walk into a room and watch <laughs> it being made with the exact same scent again. I, I am drooling as I imagine this. So, so, so thank you for that. And uh, um, no, I, I think that's a very important point, actually. And so uh, uh, actually, Eva, we'll, we'll, I think you have a point and then we'll go to Donald. Eva? Yeah, just the right point, I guess. I'd like to uh, remark that we, we, have, we all have different memories. The only non-filtered memory is the smell. So the reason that smell really bumped into your brain directly is there's no filter. So that moment your brain remembers, sometimes we remember with 
others our, our other senses add things or they might forget but somehow the formula of, of that smell is directly recognized as if you were maybe storing that memory when you were three years old so that is just like a super uh, <clears throat> strong moment and each memory each brain functions different depending on the core memory when it's the core memory it means like it's really stored in the back of the brain somewhere so it's any core memory can come up when the when it's cold right as like a, once we're i think we're going a little bit of a personal experiences here as like a personal experience i i started speaking when i was four years old so i remember the first moment that my brain was struggling to say my first word i remember what is what was happening i remember that debate should we should we try yeah let's should we try or not so okay let's try let's let's try saying elvezi which was my first word so i remember that moment of debating in the brain i think that's too much about the core memory or what was happening in my life at that moment of the brain so memory is amazing in different ways thank you interesting that you said that smell is the only unfiltered memory that's a very interesting idea i'm just thinking about that that uh, you know we we have five senses right and i think each of these senses brings us a different form of knowledge and a different form of memory maybe and and this relates very much to the first reading that that we'll do in 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 Joel S maybe if if i could voluntold you to 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 help with with this reading that would be great if you wouldn't mind but uh um i think that's uh, uh you know this idea that the knowledge that each of the senses brings is different maybe uh and i think you just made that point quite powerfully eva uh with with that wonderful example that joel gave uh donald and then mosha donald i i still think for this dialogue that there is a more fundamental sense to memory if we are if we ourselves uh are a stream like like heraclitus's river into which no one can step twice how do we know that what is our what provides for an organism its continuity through time that allows it to recognize that it's changing there's sort of a biological or organismic memory going on that's providing identity apart from the perceptions well how would we even know if i received a perception in one instant and then i'm something else the next instant how would i how would i know i think this is more uh this this may be more like what's mentioned in the mino but i think it's still pretty solid here that some something is like that when when all things are you know both the perceiver and the perceived are the are themselves caught up in becoming how does it know 
there's something else, un, something we can't question because without it, we couldn't be here having this conversation. An excellent question um, and a very interesting perspective, um, which I, I would, I, th I think we should all add our thoughts to that. Um, you know, this idea of this organism in time persisting through time and how does it understand the connection of its own identity through time? Uh, really interesting perspective that you brought with that question. Moshe, your thoughts? I guess I want to go for a couple of things. One, to refine or to put a nuance on Donald's remark about Heraclitus and the inability to step into the same river twice. If you push Heraclitus a little bit, you have to ask the question, how is it possible to step in the river once? Because by the time the stepping is done, the river is completely changed. And if that's the case, flux is so um, dominant and preeminent that knowledge becomes impossible. You could have experience without cognition. So that's a problem for me. The, uh, the problem that, that Eva raises and that you uh, seem to um, support, namely that smell is an unfiltered memory. Well, uh, smell is not a memory, smell is a sensation. Uh, smell might trigger a memory and it might trigger a memory in an unfiltered way, but smell is not itself uh, a memory because I'm smelling things right now and I'm, there's no memory involved in that at all. And the, 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 the last thing that I'll mention this time is that on Eva's account, it appears that memory is, has something to do with the brain. It's a materialistic uh, theory of memory as if, you know, my brain is in such and such a state and uh, I, you know, this, this comes out as a memory. Uh, you can see the trouble with that. Uh, you might think of a, uh, a mother in labor and the child comes out of the womb and uh, instead of crying, it looks across the room and says, give me the ball. And the doctor says, well, what do you mean give me the ball? He says, it's the one in the closet. Well, why does he say that? Well, because his, his brain is in such and such a formation. So if the brain is memory, then memory is, memory is, is material, and we might even know if, if they're even ours. So I, I know I'm playing a bit of the, uh, the stick in the mud, but to get back to Plato, when the question comes in the Phaedrus of how uh, a soul gets chosen to be in a human body, it is because it has gotten itself closest to the forms. It has had direct knowledge, direct acquaintance, I'll say acquaintance, not knowledge, of the forms. And therefore it gets into, uh, it gets into a human body. But you can imagine a, a case when a soul gets into a body not as a baby, but let's say it's a, my body right now. My body was previously inanimate, or maybe it was, a, it was animate and I was a zombie. And it would be hard to tell if I'm a zombie or not. But then all of a sudden, the soul gets into me. And now I have the this, this soul in me, which has all, these, has all this knowledge. And you could, James, 
bring it out by asking questions, getting, creating recollections and things like that. So I, I want, at least in a platonic sense, to steer us away from a materialist conception of memory and see if we can understand what memory is on a platonic level, because uh, it's so easy to, to confuse these things and we just, we run amok in our thinking, at least I do. Mm -hmm. And, and definitely appreciate the the challenge, Moshe, on that. I think that's uh, it's a critical point that you you raise. That actually, I think I think we can address that actually in the reading at one fifty four a to one fifty four b, which is I think the the first reading that we'll do here. Actually, it's on the third page, Eva. Um, and this idea that uh, memory isn't maybe something that's physical, as you were implying, Moshe. I think that's that's the important. That's the important thing. And I think Plato actually has something to say about that. Um, and so I think we can, I think we can explore that. So I appreciate the the challenge on that. And, and so the question for everybody is, is memory a purely physical chemical process? Is, is memory just stored in the physical brain or is it stored somewhere else? A critical question. Uh, so, so thank you very much for that. Uh, Nari, your thoughts? Yeah, so um, I, I was just, uh wondering that could we trust our memory going back to so many years and some people have a habit of altering what they remember because it's it becomes like a coping mechanism it's like they want to forgive people they they and it's it's so the memory is altered it's not like uh, knowledge, like in a way where you would, um, you have facts and you write things down. Like if you go to to see your doctor, things are recorded. Your physical, you know, so everything is on paper. So uh, if you have that kind of information in your memory, how accurate is it? So just just food for thought. Thank you. Certainly, the accuracy of the memory is is key, and I think that uh, um, you know, as I mentioned, I mean, my memory certainly isn't perfect, and I would be the first to admit that. Um, and so, maybe it's this idea of comparing knowledge and comparing memories is is actually pretty critical. Um, so, yeah, I mean, let, let's explore that. So, I just wanted to maybe look at this reading. Um, at 154A to 154B, and, and uh, uh, Joel S., if you wouldn't mind being Socrates in this, that would be wonderful. Uh, I don't know if I have any volunteers to be Theotetus, or I could be Theotetus. Um, okay. Yeah, okay, JK. Um, so just, just a little setup for this um, is to just explain here at 152D to 153A, which is the first reading that's posted, I read a, a paragraph out of that a little earlier. Um, this is where, this is after um, Theotetus has concluded, he, Theotetus concluded at 151E that knowledge is simply perception. So that's the quote, knowledge is simply perception. So Theotetus has concluded that at 151E, at 152a, Socrates states, but look here, this is no ordinary account of knowledge you've come out with. 
it's what Protagoras used to to maintain, and Pro Protagoras is is continues throughout this this dialogue as a key kind of character that's referenced in the background. So he says it's what Protagoras used to maintain. He said that he he said the very same thing, only he put it in a rather different way, where he says, you know, that man is the measure of all things, of the things which are that they are, and of the things which are not that they are not. So Protagoras said, uh, it's our, he's saying it's our perception. If we see that something is, well, then it is. If we have seen that it is not, then it is not. And there's no dispute over that. So man is a measure of all things. Man understands the limit of what is and what is not. And we're always able to distinguish between what is and what is not. Um, so that's, that's really the fundamental part that that I think we need to drive at maybe in this first session is, is, the, is man the measure of all things? So if I see something or smell something or hear or taste or touch something, um, is my perception of that absolute and correct? Um, so here uh, at 154A to 154B, um, if, uh, if Joel, if you wouldn't mind taking the, uh, the lead on this, as Socrates and uh, JK as Theotetus. James, can you mention which Joel? We are having a little bit of a chat debate here. Oh, sorry, it was it was Joel S that I was uh, that I was volunteering for this one. Uh, am I Joel? Am I who you're referring to? Is it Joe or Joel? Uh, it was it was you actually. Oh, Joel. okay, fine. Joel, that's yeah, what, yeah. That's fine. I just, okay, I just wasn't clear. Sorry. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, so I'll one fifty four A to B. Yeah. And I'll be Socrates. Yeah. Let us follow what we stated a moment ago and posit that there is nothing which is in itself one thing. According to this theory, black or white or any other color will turn out to have come into being through the impact of the eye upon the appropriate motion. And what Excuse we naturally. Isn't this the wrong dialogue? Uh, am, am I, I in the wrong we, place? I thought we were doing 152. Oh no! Sorry, no. This is the part that I that I wanted to do here. I I read, I read a section of one fifty two earlier. So I just thought that we would look at this part. We can go back to one fifty two later. But I just thought that we would look at this part now. No, me bad. Thanks. No worries. Sorry. Shall I just start again? If if you wouldn't mind, yeah. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Okay. Let us follow what we stated a moment ago and posit that there is nothing which is in itself one thing. According to this theory, black or white or any other color will turn out to have come into being through the impact of the eye upon the appropriate motion. And what we naturally call a particular color is neither that which impinges nor which is impinged upon, but something which has come into being between the two, which is private to the individual percipient. Or would you be prepared to insist that every color appears to a dog or any other animal the same as it appears to you? No, I most certainly shouldn't. Well, and do you even feel sure that anything appears to another human being like it appears to you? Wouldn't you be much more disposed to hold that it doesn't appear the same, even to yourself, because you never remain like yourself? Yes, that seems to me nearer the truth than the other. 
Well, now, supposing such things as size or warmth or whiteness really belong to the object we measure ourselves against or touch, it would never be found that this object had become different simply by coming into contact with another thing and without any change in itself. On the other hand, if you suppose them to belong to what is measuring or touching, then this again could never become different simply because something else had come into its neighborhood or because something had happened to the first thing, nothing having happened to itself. As it is, you see, we may easily find ourselves forced into saying the most astonishing and ridiculous things as Protagoras would point out, or anyone who understood, who undertook to expound the same views. Well, thank you both for that. I, I think that's, um, so, so this is picking up again on the idea that uh, is man the measure of all things? And, you know, I think there's a few interesting themes in here maybe that we could talk about. Um, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, at the end of the first paragraph there, uh, would you be prepared to insist that every color appears to a dog or to any animal the same as it appears to you? That's the question. And uh, Theotetus concluded no. Um, and then I, the, the, there's an interesting question. Wouldn't you be much more disposed to hold that it doesn't appear the same even to yourself because you never remain like yourself? Uh, and I'm just wondering what people think about that. And, and here I'm thinking back to the discussion that we had on the Carmides, uh, that dialogue that was really all about the science of self. Um, and, you know, is the self something that maintains, you know, some sort of constant fixed proportions in itself? Um, and And so I'm just wondering what people think about this. The, the other interesting thing about this is the, the line um, that uh, what, we, what we naturally call a particular color is neither that which impinges nor which is impinged upon, but something which has come into being between the two. So we have the word being in there, which we've discussed a number of times before, and the idea of in between. Uh, so it's, it's partaking neither of the one or the other. Um, and so, JK, what are your thoughts about, about this section or any of these questions? I just want to comment about the uh, idea of the self. And he's, uh, he's uh, you know, um, you're questioning the, uh, the idea of identity and that if uh, everything is in flux and even the, the idea of the self is also in flux and changing. So you really don't have a fixed identity we just think that we do, you know, because we have a name that we attach ourselves to and we have uh, certain, uh, you know, um, relationships with other people and the environment that we, we uh, uh, you know, um, get recognition from others that we are who we think we are based on what, what they tell us, you know, uh, and confirm that we think we are. But that idea of identity is in, is in flux, you know, that the... That we share this common, common uh, sense idea of what we are, and this, um, and these are, these are good ideas that of uh, of who we are, and it helps us, you know, in our relationships with other people. But uh, to believe that that's who you are, and that's a fixed notion of who you are, he's 
he's bringing that into question and that uh Indeed, and, and I think uh, Donald raised the idea earlier of identity and, and how we maintain some connection with our identity, and I think that's a, an important point. And then, you know, would we want our identity to be fixed all the time in any event? Uh, it, would it be a positive for us or would it be a problem for us if our identity were fixed? Uh, is that something that we want the ability to have some agency over or the ability to change? Do we want our identity to be subject to some sort of flux and if it's subject to a flux do we want it to be subject to our own flux or to a flux that something else has imposed on it so thank you for raising that that question uh moshe your ideas uh, this is absolutely fantastic okay um does it appear the same even to yourself because you never remain yourself and the second paragraph of socrates that a thing is, you know, white or warm, whatever it is, because we measure ourselves against touch. Uh, we measure ourselves against or by touch, or it's in its neighborhood. Socrates concludes that it has nothing to do, having, uh, having nothing happen to itself, having nothing to do with the thing in itself. Okay. So this to me is, is, is a private, uh, what's called nowadays a private language argument. Because we're saying if that we can't tell if the same is warm or a certain color because we don't have a, a private color chart that we can that we can compare with our current perception. We don't have a private shape chart that we can compare to our perception. We don't have a common thermometer uh, with uh, objective gradations on it that we identify as warm, hot, neutral cold we don't have a private dictionary that we can use to say oh the word red is associated with this particular item on my private color chart because i, I can't have a private color color chart so to me this says to me first of all i i i love this uninterestingly autobiographical but it really anticipates uh you know later uh analytical thinking on on private languages, and at the same time, Kantian thinking, distinguishing between things as they appear and things as they, as they are in themselves, which in Kant's terms, we may not be able to conceive, but it is still, you know, it is, is still something there accessible by reason. So that's, I just want to share my excitement about that. Thank you for highlighting this particular passage. Well, and thank you for introducing me, Moshe, to the idea of private languages. I hadn't heard of that before, but I think that's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of relevance uh, of that idea, and especially the way that you put it in terms of, you know, objectivity versus subjectivity. Um, you know, is there an objective definition of any particular color or, you know, for example, I found the use of color particularly interesting in this because, uh, thinking back to what um, Socrates says in the Mino, color is the effluvium of shape. And then he says, shape is the limit of a solid. So color is kind of this derivative of different things. And color uh, appears in different gradations maybe to each of us. And so each of us has a different way of perceiving color. And, you know, it's presumably at this time that, that Plato was writing this, you know, the whole kind of prismatic 
um, differentiation of color, you know, the, the things that the kind of things that Newton observed, um, you know, in the late 1600s, for example, uh, hadn't existed, but yet he's bringing this very sophisticated idea of, of you know, color is coming between two things. There's a connection here to the geometry that I want to to pick up on, but uh, we'll we'll take Donald and uh, and J.K. first. Donald, gotta stop raising my hand. No worries. But now that but now that we've got our Protagoras the statement that man is the measure of all things, I, I think we have to observe that Theotetus and Theodorus are measurers also not of all things, but of mathematical and geometric things. In fact, that's what Theotetus is famous for here, or at least brings out his ability to measure, to measure things that previously had been, uh, what's the term they use? You will, incommensurable things that cannot be measured. It's almost, I, I feel almost sometimes like there's a, almost a little joke here. Protagoras, you, you say man is the measure of all things. Well, here's a unit and here's a third. Please measure both of them for me. Show me that, that how man is the measure of all things. Thank you, and and, uh, and and that was the perfect uh, segue into the geometry that I can talk about in a few minutes. But uh, you picked up, I think, on the irony in 163a, which I've uh, kind of highlighted in the footnote on the first page of the um, of the uh, of the document on the shared drive. And uh, in this passage, uh, Socrates is putting words in the mouth of, of Protagoras. He says, "You." Just rely on plausibility, though if Theodorus or any, any other geometer were to do that in his branch of science, it's a good-for-nothing geometer he would be. And so Protagoras uh, pretends to know that uh, it's actually on the first page of that, the, uh, the one with the uh, spiral of Theodorus on it, um, and the quote right at the top. Um, the, uh, uh, you know, this idea that Protagoras can pretend to know uh, whether Theodorus is a, a good uh, good for nothing geometer or not, uh, so there, there's some particular irony in that 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 uh, Plato is is playing upon. So uh, I think you raised that important point, and maybe we can just leave this diagram on the uh, on the screen and uh, maybe just give a little thought to what Plato is trying to say with geometry here a number of times. Um, but we'll go to to J.K. first. Yeah, I want to just touch on the idea of uh, the uh, what um, what Feynman mentioned that uh, you know language, uh, you know um, use of language to name things. You know, uh, maybe it's not that Im as important as knowing the thing. But if you wanted to share, you know, what you know with uh, other people, then then you need this kind of a public uh, language. And so it's not discounting the idea that there's no private language that you can come up with uh, for yourself. But if you want to communicate with other people, then you need to you know, enter into this a shared public space where there is this uh, language that everybody understands uh, and you want them to understand you. 
So I, I want to touch on that, this notion of private language. That's actually a really interesting connection that you made, I think, to what Moshe said about private languages and this idea of the public language being a shared language. That's a really interesting. So, so we've got a private language and a shared language. And certainly, you know, understanding what each other is saying is a key theme to the Phaedrus, which we discussed. And I think that's a really interesting use of that. Um, so thank you for making that connection and especially for tying it to, to what uh, Feynman said in that introductory uh, video that we looked at. Moshe, what do you think about that? Well, I, I just want to clarify my point that my, my point was making was that a private language is impossible because we can't have things like a private color chart. We can't have things like a private dictionary because there's nothing to keep them the same. Uh, there's, there's, you know, there's a, a color chart that an artist has, uh, has all these different colors that goes around it, all different sorts of reds, blues, greens, you know, things like that. You can't have that by memory. Memory doesn't support that kind of thing. It's, it's, it's not as if we could take it out and share it with a bunch, bunch of people and everyone could say, oh, that's a blue and that's a red, that's a green. Uh, our, our, our notions of sizes, you know, we don't have a, a chart that shows us privately what what we mean by a word, by the word size. So all language has to be public and, and private language is impossible. So if you think that there's some sort of private language that you're relating to a public language, I'm saying that's impossible because the private language itself is. Sorry, we had a, we had an algorithmic interruption there. Sorry. So thank you, Moshe, for, for that clarification. I think, um, and, and I wonder what people think about that. You know, I, um, when you said private language, I guess maybe I was assuming that it's kind of what my inner voice is telling me. Uh, but maybe I misunderstood the, the concept of, of private language in that context. I, it was just an assumption that I immediately made in my head. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, the, this idea of, of, you know, whether you can, whether there is in fact a private language is an interesting, uh, interesting question that you raised. Um, JK, your, your ideas? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, that's uh, probably an interesting topic because that's exactly what, uh, what that school of thought, you know, uh, or Wittgenstein, right, uh, asserts that there is no private, you can't have a private language. Hmm. But uh, there are a lot of, uh, you know, you mentioned artists, you know, that, do have, have a private language in which they could, uh, you know, um, they, it becomes shared maybe at a later date when people catch up to what the, what he was doing, right? So it, it is possible that, uh, you know, um, a certain scientist, uh, you know, certain scientists and make discoveries and nobody else, he's way ahead of other, others' uh, understanding. So it, it's, it's private when only he, can understand it, uh, right? And uh, it becomes public later when other people catch on to that and you know is able to understand it. So just like what's the guy, uh, the scientist Bruno was, uh, you know, uh, burned at the you know burned by the church, uh, you know, uh, because they they didn't want him to assert those things and they probably didn't understand what he was doing, but it, it was a threat, and uh, maybe nobody else, nobody else at that time really understood what he was doing. And only later, when it became more, became more public and uh, and understood, then they 
they recognize well this you know then, then it becomes public so yeah I, I think there is a i mean that's just a, a raises the interesting question about whether there is such a thing as a private language. Interesting and, and interesting use of the analogy to artists, especially in that quote at 152B to 153A, um, the part that I read earlier about uh, Homer, for when Homer talked about ocean begetter of gods and Tethys their mother, he made all things the offspring of flux and motion, or don't you think he meant that? And maybe that's the, maybe this is the idea of, you know, is, is, are these Homer's own ideas or are these shared ideas? Um, so maybe, I, I don't know about the terminology of private language and maybe Moshe can talk more about this, but, um, you know, at least this artistic representation is something that is individual to the artist. Um, and, you know, does that artistic expression have an effect on us as the observers of the art um, I think observation is certainly a key thing, and that'll be in our next reading in the next section that I was thinking we could turn to. Um, but, you know, does the artistic impression that is made on us by others affect our sense of things? And certainly um, when in, in 152D to 153A, when Socrates says, and if, so here he's talking about Homer making flux the, the begetter of all uh, of all things, he says, and if anyone proceeded to dispute the field with an army like that, an army led by Homer, he could certainly, he could hardly help making a fool of himself, could he? And uh, I really like that. Uh, yeah, it's it's that paragraph uh, right there, sort of about two thirds of the way down there. And it, it's really, I thought that was an interesting kind of thing, like who would, who could dare to debate with Homer? Uh, Homer, the often quoted, and and uh, so that that was an interesting take on that. Um, Greg, what are your thoughts? Uh, I was sitting here listening. I think uh, it, uh, the issue perhaps is more semantic than real. Here is like what uh, what J.K. and the Marshall meant. It really, I think one is meant to be private understanding, and I think the language itself is public because language has to be public. It's a tool. Everybody have to use the same tool, just describe and think about the same uh, things. But the understanding can be different. So you have private understanding, but a public language. That's what my, my comment is. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And I think that's maybe a helpful clarification. Um, you know, this idea that each of us has a different understanding and, and understanding maybe how is understanding formed? Is it based on meaning, perhaps? And this is something that I think we talked about in Phaedrus as well, you know, the use of language. Uh, and when we translate language, it's translated based on meaning. I think that was the conclusion that a number of the participants reached at the point. Um, and so maybe understanding is key here. Uh, Moshe, your thoughts? Um, I, I want to address this thing uh, about art. Uh, I, I was reading uh, Walter Benjamin, who was in the 1930s, he was a, a critic. He was a literary critic, uh, but it applied to all sorts of things. And uh, what he was saying it was that criticism is vital to the creation of art. Uh, it, it is much a part of of uh, something being an art as it is as it is the producer of the so-called art itself. The um, if you take a look at, at music. Uh, if you take a look at Beethoven, you can, or, or any other person you want, 
uh, the meaning and significance of Beethoven changes during the periods, uh, the historical periods uh, that the observer is in based upon the criticism that we bring to the art relevant to our social cultural milieu. And uh, uh, as far as an artist having uh, an internal language, uh, I think that if criticism, if Benjamin is right and Walter Benjamin is right and criticism is actually part of the artistic process, we could understand an, uh, a so-called artist, you know, throwing uh, bottles of paint all over himself and then going and rolling around on a canvas and that being judged as art somehow in the criticism uh, maybe when the person looks at it reflectively is saying, ah, that's great art. Other people at the time would say, well, that's junk. Uh, and then uh, 100 years later, after uh, Pollock, whatever Pollock's first name was, uh, came out and was regarded as a great artist because he was dribbling paint all over the, the, the place. We could say, oh, well, that guy with the, the wet T-shirt, he really anticipated Pollock. I mean, what great stuff that he was doing. But it has nothing to do, it has as much to do with the artist as it does with the criticism of the artist. So the artist doesn't have to have any internal dialogue or internal language or internal meeting in order to be able to put this stuff out in a public forum and later have it become art as a result of criticism. Hmm. A really interesting perspective. Thank you. The, uh, certainly, I think the, the criticism of the art uh, is, is Kind of almost intrinsic to the process, isn't it? Um, so, very interesting point. Thank you, um, Eva. If you could maybe just put on that first page again, the uh, the one with the spiral. I just wanted to, I just wanted to explore just a little bit about why, you know, what is the account of the reasons why Plato brought geometry into this, and in particular. The spiral of Theodorus. So this is referenced at um, references the spiral of Theodorus um, at uh, one forty one forty seven e. And here uh, Theodorus talks about how he generated the spiral. Um, and so Plato refers to geometry a number of times in this dialogue. At the beginning, he says geometry is a branch of philosophy. Um, I don't think we think of geometry as such these days, um, but certainly Plato refers to it as such at that point. Um, and I just wanted to see if we could maybe just kind of understand the context in which Plato was writing and the context in, in which he's bringing this in. And is there something that he would like us to think about here or to consider here? The um, there's a passage as well at 148, uh, 148a, uh, which gets actually a little bit technical in some of the geometry. 147e and D and E and 148a. Uh, 148a in particular, uh, Theodetus says, when we took the intermediate numbers, such as three and five, and any number which can't be produced by multiplication of two equals but only by multiplying together a greater and a less, a number such that it is always contained by a greater and a less side. A number of this kind we compared to an oblong figure and called it an oblong number. Um, I'm wondering if this is somehow related to this idea of an intermediate form 
uh, in that passage that we just uh, in that passage that uh, Joel and J.K. read a little bit earlier. And and what is is there a particular importance of this particular spiral? And why does Plato bring this into the into the dialogue? I guess you know Plato was a dramatist. I I I, I was told before he uh, wrote these dialogues and and is there a particular dramatic element because i i think maybe what moshe said about criticism you know it's it's the it, it's the understanding of the artist i think maybe that's important and so the artist of this dialogue is plato and and what do we understand of his background when we apply our own critical perspective on it and maybe that's kind of important to understand um, donald your thoughts I think I didn't see where you were going, but I think the point I wanted to make was about appearances, that what Protagoras extracts from appearances, I guess man is, you know, judges, measures. But if we think about geometry, and, and the Theodorus in here was doing this from diagrams. And like in the Mino, that maybe these were with a, you know, on a sand table or, or something, they weren't probably using paper to draw on. These, these diagrams are appearances. And I don't know what Protagoras would extract from these appearances, but what the geometers extract from these appearances from drawings like this, where in actual fact, none of these are geometric lines or triangles or whatever. They're poor representations, and you can't tell that things are incommensurable by somehow measuring the lines in the diagram. What, what they see in this diagram, what they measure from this diagram, is something eternal something unchanging. It's like they see the infinite and the finite or something. They have a whole, they have a different relationship. They're not philosophers, but I think Plato, Socrates, sees here a model for how philosophy could work at a, at a different level and, and, and see something very profound in appearances. Things appear, but what, what do we get from them? As man, how do we measure them? And Theodorus and Theotetus see a lot here, a lot that most of us wouldn't see. Thank you. I, I think, Donald, you were the one who mentioned earlier that uh, Theotetus and Theodorus are the measurers, those who measure and the measurers are different from that which is measured. Uh, so the measurers are the observers, and that which is measured is is the thing, maybe. And so there's an interesting, you know, idea at 152d where Socrates says, uh, "I'll tell you now, or I'll tell you, and this now is certainly no ordinary theory. I mean, the theory that there is nothing which in itself is just one." thing. Um, so there's two interesting words that I picked up in that, the, the word one and the word thing. And what do we understand 
by the meaning of the word one and the word thing. Uh, and here in this in this spiral, which is based on Pythagorean, you know, the basic Pythagorean theorem, which I think you know almost all of us maybe learned at one point. I, I don't remember when I learned it in school. It's just it's it's that little bit of knowledge that just always seems to have been there. A squared plus B squared equals C squared in a right angle triangle. So a triangle where there's a 90 degree angle, um, as we see here in the spiral, the little square notches in the first three triangles, the one with the square root of one, the square root of two, and the square root of three has that little uh, square angle. So that's a 90 degree angle. And so Theodorus was able to construct this right angle triangle in a way that it moved around in a in a circular fashion, but the circle is never completed. Um, and we have in here incommensurable lengths, you know, like the square root of uh, three is incommensurable. The square root of five is, is incommensurable. And yet one itself is not incommensurable. So we have a mix of that which is commensurable and that which is incommensurable. And so when you said, Donald, that you know, maybe this was this is a model for uh, for how philosophy can be, or a model that could apply to philosophy. Um, you know, I, I I'm actually kind of seeing some meaning in what you what you said there, and I'm just wondering what others think, either either in this kind of construction or you know what you know again what what was the meaning that Plato was trying to imply with this? Plato being the dramatist who is presenting this this dialogue to us. So it's a very interesting, very interesting thought here. You know, this, this idea that we get these, you know, the, the one constant in this spiral is the one on the, on the outer edge all the time. It's one. It, that's the fixed thing. What's not fixed are the internal lengths. Uh, the only internal length that's, that's really fixed uh, are, are the commensurable internal lengths. Uh, for example, the square root of one, uh, square root of four, you know, is two. Um, so anyway, what are your, your thoughts, JK? Yeah. Related to philosophy, is he uh, saying that uh, everything is, everything else is in flux, but somehow, you know, mathematics, you know, is, is something that may not, may not be that you uh, that somehow there's something be this is something beyond beyond the all the changes and uh, and the flux of uh, of life experience, mm. but somehow you know uh, <coughs> these geometric forms, measurements and so forth, have stayed the same in terms of um, you know the formulas of of uh, you know of measurement. Is that, is that what he's getting at? Yeah, you know, it, it's a, an interesting question. I mean, math is maybe something that is knowable in terms of, you know, there being equations and you know one thing equals another. We know that E equals MC squared. You know, that, that equal sign tells us that there's that fixed relationship. Um, and so maybe that's something that we can know but then Donald used the word measurer. So how do you measure? Do you use math to measure? Or do we use some other method to measure? Uh, so measure, you know, how do you know the length of something? So, so when Protagoras says that man is the measure of all things, what is it that establishes the measure? 
And you know, maybe there's something in this geometry. Maybe it's the maybe it's the connections, the vertices in this uh, spiral that are actually establishing the measure of each length, right? So the individual lines could go on forever. But what is it that that delineates a, a line? What what is what is it that establishes the beginning of a line and the end of a line? Uh, so is is the measurement or is the measure something different from the math? Um, and and I, I think it maybe has something fundamental to do with this idea of this notion of Protagoras that man is the measure of all things. JK? Yeah, if, uh, well, if Protagoras is saying that man is the measure of all things, somehow he, uh, you know, he's suggesting that uh, man uh, determines um, by its own... Um, perceptions and understandings, you know, um, how the world is, you know, that we actually create the world within, a, you know, with our own minds. But when it comes to something like mathematics, you know, some people do believe that we created the mathematics and determines the reality of the world we live in. But is math, is mathematics created by us or is it discovered, right? So that's the question. If it's discovered, then there's something else beyond man's, uh, man's measure of all things. It's not how we, uh, you know, uh, it's not up to us to, uh, to determine how it is. It's already, it has its own determination. Really made me think, J.K. I, I appreciate that. Actually, this idea of you know, if math pre-exists uh, our own knowledge, and you know, again, to go back to what Plato said in in the Mino, knowledge, all knowledge being recollection, um, then how are we to to be the ones that establish that measure of of that knowledge? Um, so that's a that's a very interesting point. If 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 we are recollecting math, we're not actually inventing math. We're recollecting it. Uh, it's a very interesting point. I would draw just. I didn't put this in the in the readings and the shared drive, but there's a little uh, passage at uh, 148, 148D to E, in which Socrates again makes reference to geometry. So at the beginning, he said that geometry is a branch of philosophy. And at 148D to E, Socrates says, uh, go on then, you gave us a good lead just now. Try to imitate your answer about the powers. So that, that, uh, the spiral of Theodorus is all about the powers, the, the, the squares, the powers. It says, try to imitate your answer about the powers. Then you brought together, there you brought together the many powers within a single form. Now I want you in the same way to give one single account of the many branches of knowledge. So again, I, you know, I asked a, a few moments earlier, do we know what the definition of one is? Do we all share the same definition of one? And then in this particular passage, he's talking about bringing all the powers together within a single form. Earlier, he said that the number of powers are unlimited which would be another way of saying infinite. So there's infinite powers, which is actually 
the the title of the uh, Steve Strogatz book that I mentioned at the beginning uh, when I mentioned his podcast, Infinite Powers. So there's infinite powers, and yet uh, Socrates says here, you brought together the many powers within a single form. Uh, so this idea of the forms, maybe uh, I'm wondering, is is it taking shape, maybe in this in this spiral that he's presenting here? Uh, so food for thought. I I, I don't know, um, but I'm wondering if if the way we define thing and the way we define one may have some relevance to this. And again, that idea of definition and do we share a common definition of these things? Uh, Donald and then Greg. One, I I, I think there is something different about if you look at this diagram Pythagoras says well it could mean different things to different people and, and in one sense it it may that is there will be some people that won't understand it but there'll be others that look at this diagram and say well however imperfect a representation this is of, of of uh, the roots and powers, this is telling me something, uh, it's providing some invariant, something that's not changing, something that's true. And I, I would say mathematically, in, in this stuff, it makes no difference what the length of one is. It can be any arbitrary length. But this diagram shows how to construct a series of other links, beginning with any value for one, any actual length for one, some of which will be links and some of which will be surds, as Theotetus says. And he points out how to pick out you know, four, nine, 16, you know, and say those are the links and the others are thirds. So, you know, I think in a sense, yes, I don't know if this is the forms, if mathematics are forms, but they certainly in some ways seem to be a, an extraction of invariance from appearances which which are not invariant they're flux or they're constantly changing interesting thought thank you in this um yeah, the idea that one is maybe undefined it's just simply one one unit um i just uh actually Joel, who's a co-host here, uh, Joel G. If uh, I, I know, I saw you. You had a question, so if you if you'd like to ask your question, me, yeah. Oh man, my, that was fast. Yeah, sorry, uh, just sorry. Yeah, yeah. A very very quick question uh, related back to what you and I was talking about a few days or a week ago about that video about Spinoza and Leibniz about this question of whether. Um, uh, on mathematics, so to speak, uh, does does this is this in any way related to all on the questions of um, essence versus substances? Substances, excuse me, is, does is that relevant in any way, whether it's physical or metaphysical in some sense, or mm -hmm. is is that too out in left field? 
I, I think you, you you hit an important point, and I think it maybe relates to what uh, Donald just said in terms of the incommensurable. So maybe if the incommensurable uh, elements in this diagram are maybe if we equate those with kind of the metaphysical, you know, that which never ends versus the physical, which has an ending and a beginning, uh, maybe there is a relationship there that's uh, that we can think about um, or an analogy that we can think about there. So uh, it's, it's a good question, I think. Thank you. Uh, Greg? Uh, yes, I, I just have some thoughts about, uh, uh, you know, the, the point that you, 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 you want to discuss about the, the Pythagoras uh, 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 you know, saying that man is the measure of, uh, of all things. And I think uh, uh, from my understanding, reading Plato's and all the discussion here, it seems that uh, the, the man here is pointed to specific a person, like a particulars, you and me, Joe, anybody. Uh, that everybody sees things differently. And in that context, that a lot of discussions are laid out. But there is also, I think, uh, uh, I, don't, I haven't seen yet in the, in the discussion, but uh, if we stand today's position, standing we are where we are now, I think this man I refer to as a species. The species of man is a measure of all things. And I think there is some truth in it. It's like all knowledge we gain today, mathematics, physics, or science, or other branches, at the end of the day, is look to develop from the prism of man as a species, not from horse, from dog, or any other things. So in that kind of context, I, I found that, that that sentence has been has a has a profound inner meaning, in the sense that the relation between man's conscience and the order in the universe. Anyway, that's my comment. An, an interesting point that you make about the, the generality of the species versus the particularity of the individual man. So I think that's an interesting point. And, and certainly there was a passage in, in the dialogue, and I, I didn't mark it, but uh, where I think Socrates asks, well, is, you know, if a, I think he used a baboon, for example, is if a baboon perceives something or a different animal perceives something, um, does that constitute knowledge? Um, and, and then, you know, once we go beyond knowledge, there's also the question in this dialogue, which I'm, I don't think we'll have a chance to explore maybe this session, but I'd maybe like to pick up on it next section is the idea of the connection between wisdom and knowledge. And I think, I think maybe you just use the word order. And I'm, I'd like us maybe to think about the, the question of how order fits into a distinction between wisdom and knowledge. So it's one thing to have knowledge of particular facts, but then in what order do we put that knowledge? And does order have an effect on what we consider wisdom? Uh, so the idea of wisdom is raised in this first part, but it's not really explored fully. So that's just, a, you mentioned, I think you mentioned the word order, and I just wanted to mention that as something that we can maybe come back to next time. So thank you. And um, I'll take Jerry now. Jerry, welcome. And uh, what are your thoughts? Hi, thank you. Um, well, I'm going to say stuff that's going to probably be obvious and what people already have said, but I find when I try to put it into my words, it, it helps me understand things. So let me know if I'm saying this correctly. 
Um, so what it seemed to me is that whole point of lines 142 and 143 was that Socrates had asked Theotetus for a definition of knowledge. And Theotetus gave him a whole bunch of examples of knowledge. And Socrates said, no, that's not what I want. Um, I want something similar to what Theodorus does when he teaches geometry. Well, what, what is that? So then we get into this discussion of, of Theodorus, you know, tracing all these powers. And the numbers of powers are infinite, but they're classifiable. Some of them are squares and some of them are roots. Some are commensurable, some are incommensurable. And Theodorus is able to tell you what makes something incommensurable what versus what makes something commensurable. So then it seems like Socrates is looking for that kind of an explanation to knowledge, the ability to, to take an infinite number of things and to classify them and explain why something belongs into one class versus another class. So why does a certain thing, why would classify a certain object as knowledge and maybe another object as opinion. Um, it seems like he's looking for something that allows us to make distinctions and classify things. How that gets us to the forms, I'm not exactly sure of it, but that's what I understand the point of that section to be. Thank you, and, and you know, certainly the, the idea of actually speaking these things, I think one does make uh, connections in the mind that that maybe unspoken those connections don't exist and so you i mean this is something that i do myself uh, i think and you raise a, a good point with that and and the word classification that you used i you know just kind of triggers some thoughts in my own mind about you know again how do we go from the particulars uh how do we go inductively maybe from there to the uh, to the general form that we're really trying to find, and 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 do we use common classifications in a way that others can understand? So uh, I think you, I think you put that well, and it it was I, I found it helpful for my own thinking. So I appreciate that, uh, Moshe, and then J.K. I, I want to look at two things. One, um, incommensurables. Uh, are not the same as irrationals. Um, when we say that something is incommensurable, we, we mean that we can't form a ratio, we can't describe something as a, as a Pythagorean ratio between two numbers. And this was particularly important in Pythagoras, who thought that everything could be expressed as a ratio, but the, uh, uh, a, a triangle with a base of one and a side of one uh, has a uh, has its you know the, the diagonal is equal to the square root of two, which is which is uh, irrational. But it's also it, it can't be it, you can't measure the side, the two sides, with the same measure that you do the angle. Okay? So I just want to make that distinction between irrationals and, and incommensurables. I, I I don't know if anyone can prove that. That the set of all uh, irrationals is the same as the set of all um, incommensurables would be an interesting mathematical question. The other thing that I want to go back to is this original Pythagorean theorem. Can you hear me? Because I have kids down below that are screaming. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Because uh, on yeah, your uh, sure. example, we're, we're having a little hard time hearing you actually because of that background noise. Okay, just a second. Okay, uh, at 152, uh, he says, 
um, well, you have delivered yourself of a very important doctrine about knowledge. It is indeed the opinion of Protagoras, who has uh, uh, another way of expressing it. And this, I take it as, it's not a quote, but it is a, uh, Socrates appears to be making a quote. Man, he says, is the measure of all things, of the existence of things that are, and of the non-existence of things that are not. So this sounds almost Parmenidean, that, I mean, that he's equating, um, you know, Parmenides says the only things that exist are the things that are intelligible, that don't require a contradiction and everything else doesn't exist. This is a very existential statement. He's talking about being when he's saying that man is the measure of being itself, whether something exists or whether something doesn't exist. And this is very strange because all the examples that we usually give uh, about Protagoras, and it even comes up in, in this too, about you know two people go into a room and one person says it's hot, and the other person says it's cold, and um, uh, you know you put your hand in a body of water, and to one person it feels warm, and to another person it feels cold. Uh, these are all the you know kinds of perceptual things uh, that we usually attribute to Protagoras, uh, and and now to say that being itself is something that is is the measure of man takes that in my mind to a, a to to another higher level okay so uh that being said i'm wondering if the general criticism of pythagoras which i will give in a second holds for being as well as it does for other, the other qualitative um, arguments that pythagoras seems to destroy by talking about man being the measure of all things and that is the general notion that um, Predicate relativism, in other words, if we're going to say that any predicate that we give of a particular object is relative to me or to you or to somebody else, or if being itself is something that is relative to you or me and everybody else, predicate relativism, relativism requires subject absolutism. In other words, we have to be talking about the same water that can be both hot and cold. We have to be talking about the same being, whatever that is, whether it exists or, or it's not. So... So Protagoreanism requires a type of subject absolutism, which seems to be inescapable. What do you think about that? It was a really interesting way of, of putting that, Moshe. And, and uh, we're just, unfortunately, we just have a few minutes left here. But, you know, what you spoke about, I think, really speaks to the second read, the, the third reading at 160A to 160B, which we won't get a chance to uh, to get to today, and it's this idea between this, this is the idea that the observer is passive and is observing an action. Uh, so that that the observer is is in a different passive realm from the action itself. And this idea that uh, the subject absolutism, uh, there has to be agreement on that. I, that's a really interesting, fascinating idea that uh, I think you know, has particular consequences to, uh, and I mentioned it before, you know, the world of quantum computing that we're about to enter into. And I should just explain the background of my screen here is it, it's not a qubit. I was looking for a, uh, an image of a qubit that I could put on the screen. This is the closest that I could come to it. This is an image I had before of a tetrahedron inside a sphere. Um, but there is no absolutism. If, if this tetrahedron is spinning around, 
um, there's there's no necessarily particular absolutes about this. And so I like what, how you put that, the, the subject absolutism and the predicate being the relativity, because certainly in uh, in that reading at 168 to 160b, which uh, those who want can do it on their own, uh, does talk about about that, and particularly in the in the context of becoming. So you mentioned the idea of being, um, and when I think of, of Timaeus 128a, this idea that being is eternal, and one can only understand being by making an account or by making a reasoned account. That's what Plato says at 128. Uh, or 28a of Timaeus. Uh, meanwhile, we exist in the realm of becoming. Um, and so I think that distinction that you drew there is interesting. And, and certainly when uh, in 160b, Socrates says, you must always use the words for somebody or of something or relatively to something. Uh, this is in terms of uh, the observer and that which is observed. So that idea of relativity, I think, is is an important one that you raise. So, uh, so thank you for that. Um, we have unfortunately, I think, reached the the kind of end. We, we've there's so many ideas. This is such a it's such an intriguing and and in many it's a it's a dialogue on many different levels, a dialogue of many different dimensions. I think, and as I said at the beginning, every time I read it, I find something new in it. Um, so I, I, I'm really looking forward to reviewing the recording of this uh, because there have been so many good ideas uh, brought up here and, and I didn't have a chance to write them all down. So I think that's a bit of the memory project that I will undertake uh, after this ends and after we end the recording. Um, again, to pick up on this theme of memory, uh, that last reading, which again, we won't get to either, but the idea that memory is really a part of knowledge. So there's perception, but there's also memory. And we can have knowledge uh, by way of memory as well as by way of perception. So that was the agreement that Theotetus and Socrates reached at 164b, that memory is a part of knowledge. Um, and certainly there will be a memory of this episode in the podcast recording that will be posted in the coming weeks. So invite anybody to listen to that uh, who wants to. And uh, we look forward to reconvening in two weeks uh, where we'll look at the next part of the Theotetus and I'll, I'll kind of set a dividing line for that section, probably another 24 or so pages. Uh, and I don't think we'll reach the end of the Theotetus this season, but I think it will set us up well for the next season. So, uh, so anyway, we'll just, uh, we'll, I'll invite Eva to uh, kind of wrap up the recording momentarily and just to, to remind those who would like to stay on for Plato's Cafe uh, for a half an hour after we finish the recording, you're more than welcome to. And uh, so with that, I will pass it uh, over to Eva with thanks to everybody. Thank you, friends. Thank you, James, for putting all this together. We are looking forward to see you for the next episode in two weeks. It is always exciting to brainstorm with Plato's ideas and all participants' ideas here. We appreciate all perspectives. This was it for today. Until next time. Bye.